Now there are a lot of Bible translations to choose from. There's the King James, the New International, the Message to name just a few. However there's one I doubt you've heard of, it's the Jefferson Bible. And even though it's not well known it has a fascinating history. Now Thomas Jefferson was the third president of the United States when modern science was just starting to blossom, was flourishing. And like many intellectuals of his day, he saw rational thought and scientific methods as sidelining religion. He was thinking religion should not be influencing political, military world, but should be sidelined to just private use. Now this impacted his personal reading. His new world view meant that the Bible kept challenging him and making him feel uncomfortable. So one day he got out his scissors, razor and glue and he cut out all the parts of the Bible that upset him or he disagreed with and only kept those things that he found agreeable. And there is a copy of his personal Bible that's in the Smithsonian Institute. You may not see from there but on the right hand column we have the Beatitudes in English, then in Latin, and then I think it's French, and the very first column is ancient Greek. And you may see from there where he's got his scissors and glue. And if I enlarge that, you'll see that the Beatitudes finish at verse 12, and then you can see where he's cut and pasted. So he's, he's obviously not been too impressed with verses 13 through to 23, and he's cut them out and rearranged it. So he's made a Bible scrapbook of everything that is agreeable to him. And everything that's disagreeable, well, it's on the cutting floor. So in his Bible, the Jefferson Bible, there are no miracles or supernatural. There's no walking on the water. There's no turning water into wine. There's no resurrection. There's no ascension. No healing or demons being cast out. Instead, in the Jefferson Bible, you have a picture of Jesus who is a great moral teacher and nothing else. He has edited Jesus. He's so edited Jesus that it's no match for reality whatsoever. So what do you think? Is it good to edit the Bible like this, to cut out the bits we don't like? Well, today in our series through Jeremiah, we're going to see not a president, but we're going to see a king do something very, very similar. And so we pick this up in Jeremiah chapter 36 from verse 1. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Take a scroll and write on it all these words I have spoken to you concerning Israel, Judah, and all the other nations from the time I began speaking to you in the reign of Josiah till now. Perhaps when the people of Judah hear about every disaster I plan to inflict on them, each of them will turn from his wicked way, then I will forgive their wickedness and their sin. So Jeremiah called Baruch, son of Neariah, and while Jeremiah dictated all the words the Lord had spoken to him, Baruch wrote them on the scroll. Now as a bit of a background here, we have to unpack three things that I'll highlight. First, you may have noticed a change of king. Uh, in the previous few chapters, the previous few messages, we've been looking at King Zedekiah. Now Zedekiah ruled in the last days of Jerusalem and Judah at the second siege of the Babylonians, just before it was totally decimated. Now, we're going back to an earlier king, Jehoiakim, who reigned just before the very first siege, before the Babylonians came for the first time. 
the book of Jeremiah does not keep strict chronological order. It tends to jump around a little bit, which keeps biblical scholars in employment as they try and work out which bit fits where. But it reads like refugee literature. Refugee literature is like that, and as you'll find out as the story goes, that's exactly what Jeremiah became. So we're dealing with a new king. Second, we see again God's long-suffering patience. Over a number of years, Jeremiah has spoken God's warnings and prophecies and been ignored. So God decides, I'm going to introduce a new tactic. I'm going to put all of the warnings into one scroll. All of the warnings I've heard over the last few years in one place, read them at one time in the hope that this will have a dramatic impact, cause people to see where they've strayed, repent, turn back to me, and then I won't have to send the Babylonians to take out the country. That's his plan. And the third thing is that we're introduced to Baruch. He is Jeremiah's scribe, his secretary. Just like the Apostle Paul had people like Silas to write down the letters that we read in the New Testament by Paul, Jeremiah had Baruch, and he was his right-hand man and shared some of his adventures and misadventures. So anyway, Jeremiah receives the word, the word to put all his prophecies and warnings on a scroll, and Jeremiah and Baruch beaver away until it's all done. Verse 5, Then Jeremiah told Baruch, I am restricted. I cannot go to the Lord's temple. So why is Jeremiah restricted? Well, basically, the king had put a restraining order onto Jeremiah. If you go into that temple, I'm going to throw you in the prison and throw the key away. And why? Because Jeremiah had been going on and on about the people and the king repenting, and it was stirring up all sorts of trouble, and so the king had restricted Jeremiah. So Baruch goes, and he speaks, he reads out the scroll. Now, some of the king's officials happen to be in the temple, And they're so concerned about what they hear that they ask for a private reading. And so we see this in verse 17. So they grab hold of Baruch and they hear the whole scroll being read and then they say this. Tell us, how did you come to write this? Did Jeremiah dictate it? Yes, Baruch replied. I dictated these words and I wrote them in ink on the scroll. The official said to Baruch, you and Jeremiah, you go and hide. Don't let anyone know where you are. So these court officials are the good guys. They have heard God's prophecies and warnings and it, and it rocks them. And they say, we've got to take this to the king and the king's going to have to do something, otherwise the judgment of God will fall. So they take the scroll from Baruch and they take it to the king and they give it to the king's scribe. And then we pick this up in verse 22. It was the ninth month, and the king was sitting in, in the winter apartment with a fire burning in the brazier in front of him. Whenever Jehudai had read three or four columns of the scroll, the king cut them off with a scribe's knife and threw them into the brazier until the entire scroll was burning in the fire. The king and all his attendants who heard all these words showed no fear, nor did they tear their clothes. Well, that's a bit dramatic, isn't it? cutting up the Bible, cutting up God's word and throwing it in the fire. And so why did the king do this? Well, I've indicated why before, but God actually heard the king in the privacies of his his royal court. And in his response, a few verses later, God quotes back to the king the very words he said as he was burning the scroll. 
So this is God quoting back to the king what he had said. You burnt the scroll and you said, why do you write on it that the king of Babylon would certainly come and destroy this land and cut off both men and animals from it? He says, see, Jeremiah's preaching that they were away from God and needed to repent and turn back, otherwise the Babylonians would come. From the king's point of view, this is treason. This is undermining his military and political power. This is encouraging people to go over to the Babylonians and to undermine his authority. And he, he was so angry at hearing all of these prophecies that he just cut the scroll in sections and put them in the fire. So you'd expect a response. Well, the first response is from those godly officials. Even though Elnathan, Delaya, and Jeremiah urged the king not to burn the scroll, he would not listen to them. Instead, what he did is he got some henchmen and he sent them after Jeremiah and Baruch, but God hid them. So even though there were some godly people on the court that encouraged the king to take the word seriously, he ignored them. God's next response, and verse 27, after the king burnt the scroll and con- that contained the words that Baruch had written at Jeremiah's direction, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, take another scroll and write on it the words that were on the first scroll which Jehoiah, king of Judah, burnt up. So God's word was not going to be stopped. Just get another blank scroll and start writing. And God also has some words for the king. And we pick this up in verse uh, verses 30. This is what the Lord says about Jehoiakim, king of Judah. He will have no one to sit on his throne of David. His body will be thrown out and exposed to the heat by day and by the frost by night. I will punish him and his children and attendants for their wickedness. I will bring on them and those living in Jerusalem, the people of Judah, every disaster I pronounced against them because they have not listened. It's pretty stern words, isn't it? So what happened to the king? What happens is the king and the rest of the people ignored Jeremiah, and just as God said, the Babylonian army came for the first time. They laid siege on Jerusalem, and within a few months they broke through. And even though the Bible just says that the king was killed during the siege, Jewish tradition tells us that one of the military commanders, one of the Babylonian military commanders killed the king by the sword and threw his body up against the walls of Jerusalem. And of course the prophecy is fulfilled. The body will be thrown out and exposed to the heat by day and the frost by night. So that's what happened to King Jehoiakim. But that did not stop God's word because the chapter ends with this, these words so Jeremiah took another scroll and gave it to the scribe Baruch, son of Neriah. And as Jeremiah dictated, Baruch wrote on it all the words of that scroll that Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire. And many similar words were added to them. But you notice, and many similar words were added to it. And that's what we have in our Bible now. Jeremiah takes up 5% of the Bible, and it's that that second scroll and the words that are added to it have been preserved by the Holy Spirit and we have those in our Bible today. That original second scroll and the words that were added to it. So what are we to make of this? 
what's what's our take home? What's our application? How would he make sense of this in the 21st century? So let me begin by asking you a question. What do you do with the parts of the Bible you don't like? Now I'm assuming that you don't get scissors and razors and glue, and I'm assuming that you don't have a Bible that has a lot of burn marks in it. But what do we do with the parts of the Bible that we don't agree with, that we find difficult? Now, before you get a little super spiritual on me and say, goodness me, Douglas, there's nothing in the Bible that I disagree about. Everything is agreeable to me. And Start polishing your halo. Uh, if, I, if someone said that to me, I would ask, have you read this book cover to cover? Because if you have read this book cover to cover, there are some bits that you are going to find uncomfortable. Now, I'm not talking about the bits we don't understand that we find uncomfortable. I'm talking about the bits we understand fully and find uncomfortable. I mean, what do we do with these those bits? Well, there's kind of at least three options I think Christians tend to do. One option is to only use devotionals like Word for the Day and Daily Bread. Now, they're wonderful, and I encourage people to use those, but they tend to go for an encouraging, uplifting, inspiring tone. And if they are the only things that you read of God's Word, then you are not allowing God to challenge you. You are just reading the good bits. And so it is really helpful, imperative, that Christians pick up the Bible and read a few pages and maybe set themselves a task, I'm going to read Genesis this month or I'm going to read through the Gospel of John and not allow someone else to do your thinking for you. Now again, I can't stress enough, these devotionals are very good supplements and I have a two that I dip into every day, most days. But one way Christians avoid the uncomfortable stuff is they stick to the devotionals. Another way is that they open God's word, which is wonderful, but only read the bits they like. So they only read Gospels and Psalms. And don't worry about anything else. It's great you're reading the Bible, but those generally tend to be the comfortable bits. Though, so saying, Jesus is a bit prickly at times. Other people read more widely, but they just dismiss anything as soon as it's uncomfortable. As soon as there's a challenge to do with money, or challenge to do with their morals, or anything like that, they just say, well, that was for Bible days. It doesn't mean I have to do it today. Now, some preachers at this stage would start thumping the pulpit and waving their finger and tell you not to be so naughty and be good Christians and read more of the Bible. But I won't go down that route. I'm going to challenge you with the whole idea of relationships, healthy relationships, good relationships. Let me ask you this. If a husband and wife or two great friends cannot challenge each other, what sort of relationship do they have? Let's say a husband spends a huge amount of time playing golf. He's well respected and even elected to the golf club as president. So if he's not whittling down his handicap on the fairways, he's sort of managing club affairs. However, his teenage son is quietly going off the rails. Dad can't see it, but mum can. So his wife approaches him. 
and explains that he really should spend less time involved in golf and more time with his son. Imagine what would happen to the son and the marriage if the husband refused. You know, just didn't want to be challenged. You know, I provide for the family. You know, I don't beat you up. You know, and gives a whole list of justifications and says, but I'm going to play my golf. Refuses to be challenged. Now, how's that going to impact the relationship with his son? Because he won't be challenged. How's that going to impact the relationship with his wife? Because he refuses to be challenged. So given that a healthy relationship creates space to be challenged, how do you and I allow God to challenge us? Let's look at it at a slightly different angle. Here's a question. Can you have a personal, deep relationship with someone who doesn't challenge you? That's the premise of the movie The Stepford Wives. And this movie tells of a group of wives who live in a very upmarket suburb. And against their will, they have a microchip inserted in them so they never argue with their husbands, never contradict them, and are very subservient. Some of your husbands better wipe that grin off your face before your wife sees you. And so the movie explores that, I think, very well because it starts off wonderful for the husbands, but then the relationships develop into some quite shallow and pathetic and quite dark and ugly relationships. You see, if there's no conflict, if there's no challenge with a person, then actually what you've got is a robot. If there's no room for challenge, then one of you has a microchip. And so if we say, I like a lot of things in the Bible, but not this part, then we are removing the opportunity for God to challenge us. It's like we're creating a Stepford God, a God with a microchip that says things that we agree with and never challenges us. And we look at it and everything he does makes sense to us. However, you can't have a close relationship with someone who doesn't challenge you. And did you notice that Jefferson created a step for Jesus? Everything that made Jefferson uncomfortable, he removed, until the Jesus that he was reading about in his scrapbook Bible just confirmed every one of his prejudices and his ideas. So what's our take-home for this morning? Well, though most of us don't go to the extreme of cutting out parts of the Bible that we feel uncomfortable or getting some tweak or white out, and that sort of thing, we all, we all have ways of avoiding God's word. But we will never develop a close relationship with him if we do. I was talking with someone in the break, and, and they were lovely and very open, and they said, you know, I have an adult child who is gay, and I struggle when I come across those passages that talk about sexuality. But she says, I don't scrub them out. She says, it helps me pray. Oh, I've got a wee tear in my eye when I heard her say that because isn't that amazing? Isn't that a mature Christian? It would be a lot easier, like a lot of folk do, to say all that stuff about sexuality. Well, it's all in the last, you know, last 20 centuries. We're modern people now. We have a much broader idea of sexuality. And so when you come across those challenges from Jesus about sexuality, you just say, that's the first century. But when you're doing, you're making a step for Jesus. You're making a Jefferson Jesus. Whereas 
if you sit there and think, gee, this makes me feel uncomfortable, God. You know, I really hurt for my daughter. And then you pray. And then God makes a difference in you and in your daughter. But you have refused to make a Jefferson Jesus. You have refused to make a step for Jesus. You have allowed Christ to say what he wants to say into your word. Imagine. Imagine if we were like this lady that I was talking to earlier before, had that maturity and depth that we could sit with that uncomfortable part of the Bible and not dismiss it and just pray. <laughs> and just pray. Your lives will be transformed. You will know Christ in a way you never knew possible. His beauty will break through into your life. And healing and reconciliation will not only be yours, but those people that you pray for and touch in your lives. Wow, that's a good dream. That's a Jesus I want to follow. Not a Jefferson Jesus, not a Stepford Jesus. I want to follow the Jesus that now and again makes me uncomfortable. Not too uncomfortable, Lord. <laughs> yes, that uncomfortable. And a final word about Jefferson. At his funeral, the minister read from the common book of prayer. So you can imagine, you can imagine his casket just about to be lowered down into the ground. And the minister said these words, the words of Jesus found in John chapter 11, 25. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even though they live, they will not die. And you know, that was one of the verses he had cut out of his Bible. Very sad, isn't it? Wonderful that the minister proclaimed those words, but very sad that Jefferson had those cut out of his Bible. Let us not edit Jesus, lest we disqualify ourselves from the joy of his resurrection hope and disqualify ourselves from having that wonderful personal walk with the Jesus who died for us and loves us dearly. Let's pray.